This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. <sighs> I have to get a sip of coffee before we start today. Ah, Today on This is Hell, the ports of the Arabian Peninsula have been exporting the area's natural wealth of resources for outsiders to outsiders ever since oil was discovered on the peninsula just prior to World War II. The ports were built, the harbors were dredged, changing the natural landscape permanently, and then roads and railways were laid so resources could be extracted from the hinterland and brought directly to the port to be sent far away to benefit others. Even the workers are not from the area, with Europeans dominating management positions and East Asian migrants making up most of the more manual labor. The entire project, whether it's the British Empire overseeing it or U.S. corporations dominating or now the factories of the world, the factory of the world, China being in charge, their ports all exploit the land and the people in a process that appears to be nothing more than the continuation and the legacy of European colonialism. We'll learn what harbors, ports, and shipworkers can tell us about how the world works when we speak in a few to Lale Khalili, author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. You can find out more about Sinews of War and Trade at sinewswartrade.com. Lale is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. Lale is also the author of Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, The Politics of National Commemoration, and Time in the Shadows, Confinement in Counterinsurgencies. Follow Lale on Twitter at Lale Khalili and read Lale's read- writing at the gaming, G-A-M-M-I-N-G, Dot org on Twitter again. That's L A L E H K H A L I L I. I'm your bitter blind broke gap toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This week's question mail is what vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? What vice presidential pick is getting you 100% on board this? Joe Biden for President train wreck. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can direct message it to us via Twitter or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner right after Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. Alex, how are listeners answering the question from hell so far? What VP pick is getting you 100% on this Joe Biden train wreck? Mike A. says Jerry Springer. Carlos or Chris H. says Strom Thurmond. <laughs> Fabio L. says he could just ask Obama. Uh, Kurt E. says the vengeful ghost of Mother Jones. Mother Jones probably needed to clean up what people are doing with her magazine first, I'm thinking. Uh, Sean R. says, John Brown's moldering body. Krimsky K. says, Britney Spears is the one. Mm. What VP pick is getting you 100% on this Joe Biden train wreck? Rob H. says, Chuck Mertz. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Chris F. says, Karl Marx. Adam A. says. That's well, pretty good. Karl Marx or yeah, Chuck Mertz? No, Karl Marx. That's pretty good. Uh, Adam A. says, well, since blue no matter who Dems don't seem to care about a single thing they said or they stood for just one year ago, how about Harvey Weinstein in drag and blackface? I like that. That's good. It's Adam A saying that, not me. 
It's Adam A. Chris uh, John C says P.T. Barnum. I like my circus trains to be entertaining, and I wish for the malarkey troupe to meet my expectation. <laughs> Uh, Zach N says a Strom Thurmond body pillow. <laughs> People love that Strom Thurmond remark. Uh, Astrid N says not a single one. A train wreck is still a train wreck. Somebody get me the hell out of this handbasket. <laughs> uh, Christine M says Lenin's corpse. Appropriate picture, by the way. LOL. Mm-hmm. And the picture I had accompanying this post was Lenin's corpse. <laughs> what VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Tom G says Connie Dobbs, the first and primary wife of polygamist, polygamist and church of the subgenius founder J.R. Bob Dobbs. Ryan W says, comedy gold in this thread. Keep it going, guys. <laughs> really? Lisa B says, which one will have him humanely put down immediately after inauguration? <laughs> Mark, Mark S says, Cthulhu, white vote for the lesser of two evils. Greg B says, Carlos the Jackal. And Jeffy D says, Pegasus 2.0, the standardized, most anatomically uniform, optimally industrially processable candidate. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And here in Hangover Country, protesters are picketing at state capitals. Still, I thought for sure when Fox News Channel stopped supporting the reopened crowd, giving them their marching orders on a daily basis, these protests would just stop. And sure, in Florida and Arizona, those in opposition to reopen orders, which those states just announced, sure, protesters in both states greeted that announcement by piling up body bags outside their state capitals. But the Michigan militia trolls will be out in force in Lansing again today. The Republicans in the state legislature refused to ban guns from the state capitol. So legislators today, again, in Michigan, will be voting with an armed crowd watching over them from the legislature's gallery with the militia using the intimidation tactics of Nazis while brandishing swastikas and flying the Confederate flag. Think about that for a moment. One black state senator from Lansing actually had to be escorted into the state capitol by armed supporters of color in order to not feel so intimidated by the ocean of white privilege that was armed and waiting for I guess the whole time it wasn't about Fox News Channel fanatics doing what Fox and Friends was telling them to do. I guess it was really about people who are Alex Jones fanatics, as he seems to be the only one in any media that is still supporting the armed protesters by maybe there would be, maybe there would be Nazis, maybe there are already Nazis. Who's no, who knows, but Alex Jones is the only person in the media supporting him. I'm not sure what's more frightening, that these protesters were driven by Fox News or Alex Jones. If it's Fox News behind them, then the Republican Party and President Trump supports them, adding more mainstream acceptance and possible impact on this fall's presidential election. That's not good. If Alex Jones is behind the protest, then these people are lost to a set of conspiracy theories that are supported by other conspiracy theories and a baseless foundation that will either prop up the weak structure of their conspiracies by adding a new theory every time, or will sadly collapse into reality, potentially setting off what could be a very dangerous and violent mental and nervous breakdown for his followers. 
But I've been thinking about those protesters a lot since we spoke with sociologist Erin Hatton last week about her book, Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment, and I am still thinking about them. But this is where I have gotten so far. Erin mentioned on our show last week the way in which we identify ourselves with our work as workers. That is who we are. We had a guest on months ago. I can't remember who right now, but they were talking about the revolutionary power of the question of what do you do? When we are asked that, we're expected to reveal what we do for a living, what we do to make money, what is our paid work. But what if we didn't answer that way? What if we defined ourselves as something more than what we call our job? That job that we cannot wait to not do this weekend. That we cannot wait until vacation so we can get a break from the grind. We identify ourselves in the U.S. by what we do for capitalism. But what else are we to do? We are completely inundated with all the demands of capitalism at all times, so it makes sense we define ourselves by that work as it takes up so much of our time and energy and and its wages to some extent sustain us, making us eternally grateful, constantly in thanks to a system that takes all our precious time. And all we do is look forward to the couple of days every week from which we are free from that toiling labor. Aaron suggested that the people protesting at state capitals to reopen businesses may not only be protesting because they need that paycheck. After all, many are getting unemployment as well as stimulus checks, and some may be actually making more money right now because of their low, low wages the rest of the year. What Aaron was suggesting is that they are protesting not for that check. They're protesting that their identity as a productive worker They want to be contributing to the country and the economy. That has been taken from them. They are no longer workers. They are now on the government dole, getting government handouts. They are now the poor they hate. They are now one of those entitled poor people who get entitlements. One of those privileged poor who believe they inherently deserve special treatment, which has got to be the most profound and intense and backwards projection and displacement yet of white supremacy. Somehow, they only see privilege in the poor getting desperately needed government assistance, which never amounts to what they actually need to survive. Somehow, that impoverished life is privilege. But white privilege, despite all the glaring racial disparities in the U.S., somehow to them, it does not exist. For those who are having problems with access to food, standing in long food lines every day, a new reality is setting in that many may have never considered before, but millions of their fellow Americans are far too aware of now, and that is the potentially revolutionary feeling of not knowing where or when you will get your next meal. That feeling can have a transformative effect on your politics as the sudden awareness hits of the shortcomings of capitalism and what it means to live in poverty as it has had an impact on mine. Don't get me wrong, that revolution starved of food and power could be either left or right wing, socialist or fascist, but not knowing where your next meal is coming from. If you've never experienced it before, that unique hunger and uncertainty of your immediate future will change your life forever. But why do we only define ourselves by our waged work? Sure, some have careers that entail constantly being on the clock 24-7, and in that case, their work may define their lives. 
For instance, a firefighter or paramedic or nurse or doctor who is always on call, or even a journalist, a writer or an artist who does not only think about their work from 9 to 5. Yes, some work becomes your entire life as your whole time on earth is dedicated to that service. You may find pride of your work and the outcome of your labor, say, as a person who does landscaping or building construction. That's all certainly worth considering when you see people demanding business to be reopened. Their work may be more than a paycheck to them. And now, home from work, we don't know what to do with ourselves, with our time that is usually controlled by the market and dictates our actions. Now we don't have the market to tell us what to do. And it's hard to find value in our own personal lives when you are not doing anything. We celebrate what we are, what we do for the market. Anything else is a waste of time. Even if we did identify ourselves, defined ourselves by social reproduction rather than capitalist reproduction, that is, those things we do that do not involve financial remuneration, that we are doing them for the betterment of society, not capital, that is, social reproduction. Those selfless acts are somehow seen as selfish within capitalism. If someone asked, so what do you do? And you answered, I help out my neighbors and community by assisting them and getting them services that they need. You know, like shoveling their snow from their sidewalks, mowing their lawn, getting whatever they need from the store or pharmacy if they can't get out, helping them file government documents online, giving those in desperate need in the community a hot meal or a place to clean up. If you answered in that way, you would be seen as boasting, as look at me, ain't I great? And your selflessness, once revealed suddenly within capitalism becomes selfishness. Meanwhile, your sacrifice to capital of your working hours and your job, that's selfless because you are doing it to put food on the table and a roof over your family's head when in fact all you are doing is fulfilling the selfish desires of your employer and the company's investors. Giving to the poor is selfish in capitalism and working for the rich is selfless. All we are told to do is to be productive citizens. And to do that, go to school, to train for whatever living you hope to pursue, then get a job, do your work, raise your family, pay your taxes, and then let the next generation wash, rinse, and repeat. You don't need to help out others, and if you do, please don't tell anybody about it because that kind of bragging is selfish. Besides, if people found out you can do good by others without any consideration of pay or money exchanged, that would be chaos. Without the regulation of wages, people would be helping each other out willy-nilly, with everybody being annoyingly cooperative and getting their needs fulfilled. Who needs the market to determine our relationships? The revolutionary question we could be asking ourselves right now is, what do you do, without answering it with whatever we put on our 1040 when doing our taxes, if we do our taxes? Or better, maybe the transformative question we could be asking ourselves while sheltering in place is, what can you do for free and not for the market that has nothing to do with making money and has everything to do with contributing to the improvement of everyone's life with no financial remuneration. Money isn't even the goal. A place where we do for others something that is free from the market. That is, if anything, is still free from the market. Because when I see people demanding to get back to a job that they cannot wait to not be doing once they are back at work, counting the hours to the weekend or the days until that vacation you save the entire year to escape your waged drudgery. All I can think is, this 
is hell coming up on this is hell. The ports of the Arabian Peninsula have been exporting wealth to imperial powers for centuries, no matter who's competing for world dominance. More of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This is not contrarian radio. This is hell. The ports of the Arabian Peninsula have forever changed the area's landscape. From the dredged harbors to the ports plopped down on what were natural shorelines, to the roads and railways that were laid so interior resources could be directly shipped out of the area, or so the military could be shipped in to secure those resources. Here to guide us through the history of exploitative ports on the Arabian Peninsula, Lale Khalili is author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. You can find out more about Sinews of War and Trade at sinewswartrade.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Lale. Hello, Chuck. How are you? Good. Lale is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. You can follow her on Twitter at Lale Khalili, and you can find her writing at The Gamming. Dot org. You write how 90% of the world's goods travel by ship. Crude oil carried in tankers constitutes nearly 30% of all maritime cargo. Almost 60% of world trade in oil is transported by sea, while containerized cargoes amount for some 23% of all dry cargo by volume. It constitutes 70% of all world volume by value. But these numbers do not give a sense of the scales of the ports exporting or receiving these cargoes, nor do they give a sense of the tremendous transformations in maritime transportation that have remade the seas and the shores and the port cities. Today, working cargo harbors are no longer central to the lives of port cities. They're often far away behind layers of barbed wire and security, invisible, even forgotten. Is that invisibility intentional? And if so, why? Why do port cities purposely make harbors, the actual ports, invisible? Um, it's a very good question. Uh, and the process started actually quite a long time ago. And the reason that most uh, of the port managers and urban designers, urban planners would tell you um, is that if you're, for example, shipping oil, uh, then it's dangerous to have your oil uh, buoys or your oil terminals in a city center. Uh, or they would tell you that if you need space for uh, storing your container ships, uh, so storing your containers, then it's going to be much easier to have a lot of land to store those containers on. And of course, there's a certain degree of truth to that. But there's also something else at play here. And uh, that is the fact that the further your ports are moved out of the city, the more the machinery of trade is hidden, securitized, made invisible. And the reason that that's important is several fold. On the one hand, I think it's there is an element of security around this. People don't want to see what comes in and what goes out. And in the Arabian Peninsula, a lot of these ports are actually places uh, that, for example, the U.S. Navy or the French Navy goes for their R&R. And so there's an element of uh, geopolitical security around it. But then there is a much longer standing reason also for this. Um, if you've ever watched any films about the docks in the 1950s, even uh, the completely conservative and anti-union film made by Ilya Kazan, you'll see that 
it really mattered that the port was near to the city, that the port workers, the dockers, were actually part of the city, that their lives um, uh, wove together the city and their workplace, the port. But with the ports moving further and further out, we don't see that as much anymore. We don't, the dockers are not as visible. They cannot call upon the people of the city to support them. And they're kind of disconnected from that social milieu. So that's one reason. The second, of course, is that the seafarer that come in don't have the ability to go out to the city as much as they used to. There is a huge amount of really wonderful literature written in, you know, between the 19th century and the middle of the 20th century about sailors arriving into ports and uh, having the brothels and the, and the bars and the restaurants and the sort of the social life of the port, which was always rowdy and gregarious and often quite intransigent. Um, and of course, that has, uh, with, with ports moving out of city centers, that has been entirely removed because a seafarer that comes into town on a ship that is going to have an 18-hour or 24-hour turnaround time is probably not going to have enough time or money to pay for a taxi to go 50 miles into the city uh, for a little bit of rest and leisure. And so... Um, whether intentionally or not, uh, this moving of ports out of city centers has changed the cities themselves, but has also changed the lives of the dockers and the seafarers that actually make shipping possible. I want to make sure that everybody understands how powerful uh, port worker unions have been. Uh, in the past couple of years ago, I believe, we spoke with an author, historian Peter Cove, about the power of the port workers in Durban, South Africa, the power of the port workers in Oakland, California, and their ability to control trade. And that that uh, they leveraged that power in order to get things that they wanted done. For instance, they did not want to be involved in uh, importing or exporting anything from Rhodesia when it comes to the port in Durban. So were these ports being made invisible then? Simply a, a reaction to the massive power that port worker unions have. You talked about, in your book, you talk about how in Aden, that uh, port worker union, that kind of uh, striking and those labor disputes ended up you know, leading to eventually the many of the independence movies throughout the Arabian Peninsula, throughout the region. So is, Absolutely. So is this invisibility about ports then just a reflection? of how powerful international port worker unions had become. Uh, definitely, that is the case. Um, and certainly, you can definitely see that a lot of different mechanisms were used to actually reduce the power of these international uh, dockers unions and actually local dockers unions. Um, so in Aden, for example, as you mentioned, uh, when it was a British colony, the single most important and disruptive group of workers were those that worked on the port. And they could literally stop trade. And, and it was something that um, Aden, Aden uh, really depended on. And so um, in a way, uh, moving the port out of town uh, really reduces the ability of those port workers to sort of organize the public around them. Because I think one of the other things that's really important, and I love Peter's work, is that um, one of the things that has always been in, uh, interesting is that port workers have been most powerful when they have been able to make alliances with uh, other groups within the community. So as recently as 2011, and then again in 2014, we saw port workers in uh, Oakland, for example,
example, organizing with the Occupy movement in 2011 around then and 2014 with uh, pro-Palestinian groups um, in order to, uh, for example, uh, refuse to um, uh, allow ships uh, to unload uh, in, the, in the Palestinian case, allow Zim, which is an Israeli company's ships to uh, unload their goods at the port. They were able to do this because they were able to make those kinds of connections and the physical proximity of the port to the city allows that to, uh, to, the, to the extent that um, uh, uh, people can actually see what the dockers are doing. They can actually be mobilized to come to the gates of the port. Uh, they can be there to support the dockers uh, striking or refusing to unload ships or engaging in other kinds of um, uh, resisting uh, action. So how difficult is it to see those things that are made invisible by the ports? And more importantly, how did you see these things? How were you able to report on these things? So some of these ports that I ended up going into, um, I met somebody who met somebody who introduced me to somebody who took me into some of these ports. But the ports that I managed to get into weren't the most securitized ports. They weren't the ones that are constantly described as the biggest port in the Middle East, or they, uh, or or in fact they are. So um, so I ended up going to some of the ports in uh, Kuwait um, and Qatar, uh, and in fact a number of the ports in the UAE because and, and in Oman because. People People were kind enough to introduce me to somebody who could take me into the port. The port that I really wanted to go to was the port of Jabal Ali in Dubai. It is the single most important port in the Middle East. Uh, it is the only port on the top 10 list of largest ports in the world that is not in East Asia. Uh, there is no other port in the top 10 list that is not in East Asia. So that's uh, other than Jabal Ali. Um, and it is an enormously significant port of transit. Um, I tried and tried and tried to get into the port and there was no way that I could from the land side. So eventually I got on a container ship uh, twice, uh, once from Malta and the second time uh, again from Malta, but in a different route and ended up in Jabal Ali from the seaside. Um, and this was such an unusual thing for passengers and particularly for a woman passenger to be doing this and getting off the ship uh, at Jabal Ali. That The second time that I came through, all the guys at the border, which I had to cross, actually remembered me. Uh, and so so this is, this is a kind of an unusual situation. The other port that I really wanted to visit, uh, which I wasn't able to do, uh, was the port of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this one wasn't because I wasn't allowed to get into the port from the land side. It was simply because I was not allowed a visa into the country. And so um, that also limited my ability to come from, uh, to come into Jeddah from the land. But then the second ship that I took, the second container ship that I took, uh, actually arrived from uh, the sea. Uh, it was one of the Jeddah was one of the stops. And so I actually got to see the working of the port from the sea. And that was um, utterly fascinating because, of course, when you do that, what you're seeing is the machinery of the port in action. And actually what you see are the workers of the port, not the managers. You're not interviewing the port manager or the foreman, or the or whoever, what you're seeing are uh, the uh, the guys who are coming on to unlock and unlash the containers. You're seeing the crane uh, operators. You're seeing the truck drivers that uh, that take the containers that are uh, this this uh, embarked from the ship. And so this is an utterly different experience um, than one of coming from landside. It also has the added benefit of being on a ship with a bunch of sailors uh, who 
have done this job for a long time and therefore you can actually talk to them about the experience of arriving at different courts, what they find amenable, what they find frustrating, what their experience, how their experience has changed over the course of years or decades. Uh, in a couple of cases, the captains had been uh, seafarers pretty much since the 1980s. And so they really had a lot to say about 40 years of being at sea and what they saw transformed. That was also an extraordinary experience. And I hope to have woven some of in some of that into the story. But I am writing a little bit more about that as well um, at the moment. When it comes to that transformation, how much is shipping still uh, transforming right now? How much is it still changing? Is shipping in a period of intense transformation as we speak? And if so, what direction is that transformation taking shipping? So it is going through... Uh, a radical transformation, and we really don't know what is going to happen in the post-COVID world. So let me give you uh, a few different ways in which uh, being on the ship, the maritime world is changing. So the first one is one that probably your listeners are very familiar with because it was in all sorts of news, and that is the story of the cruise ships, right? So the cruise ship uh, as a kind of a form of holiday that somebody that is generally quite affluent can take and who has the ability to move, you know, through international waters and get transit visas in lots of different places is one that actually, uh, it, it tends to be the ki- a kind of a, a, um, a holiday that uh, more affluent people take. And it has become a vector of COVID. It has become a form of transportation for the illness itself, for the virus itself. Now, we've heard a lot about the people who are on the cruise ship, uh, the passengers, but we haven't heard a huge amount um, or very much at all. There have been a few really good pieces but only a very few about the actual the people that actually work on the cruise ships. So each of those really really super big cruise ships that have I don't know five or six thousand passengers on them have also around anywhere between five hundred to a thousand workers on the on the cruise ship, uh, and many of those people have had to stay on the cruise ships after the cruise ships have disembarked their passengers because they are unable to fly home. So home is the Philippines or or China or some of the other seafaring nations of the world. And many of these seafarers can't go anywhere because the flights have been canceled or the borders have been shut or they're unable to disembark from the ships because that is the rules of the ports. Um, And this has been such a, a source of stress that I was just seeing today that unfortunately the International Transport Workers Federation announced that a couple of seafarers from cruise ships, after having their flight canceled again and again and again, had actually committed suicide because they felt like they had nowhere to go, they couldn't go home. They, and in some instances, they had been on board the ship for several months. So that's the most obvious, that's the one that's in the news quite a bit. But if you read financial news, you'll also see that there are other massive changes afoot. So um, perhaps the one that would be of some interest to your listeners is the one about oil. We know that over the course of the last couple of weeks, the price of oil futures um, in Texas went negative, meaning that the oil traders were actually paying people to take the oil off their hands rather than having to pay for it to be stored. Now, the effect of that was that Um, I've always said that oil futures is this kind of a fantasy world of virtual imagination, speculation. It's it's betting. It's it is um, it's unreal in some senses. But it came up against the hard reality of there being limited storage uh, and there being a glut of oil. And so what that has meant is that there are now uh, enormous number of ships, uh, tankers. 
uh, that are being uh, chartered in order to actually act as um, storage for oil at sea. So what you're finding is that ships that were going to be retired or scrapped are being brought out, barges are being brought out, small little um, uh, coastal ships are being brought out in order for them to act as oil storage um, on, on the ocean. And of course, what this means is that both for the owners of these uh, sh these tankers, they can charge a pretty uh, penny. And in fact, they did. I think at the height of uh, the chartering of tankers, you had uh, a daily rate of something like $300,000 per one of these big ships uh, to be acting as a storage for oil. But it also means that there are going to be people sitting on these ships, the seafarers sitting on these ships, indefinitely really waiting for a shift in the price of oil or an opening up of storage so they can bring the oil to land so that's the second and the final uh, bit that i want to uh, mention is that of course with china being the factory of the world uh when covid uh intensified there and the businesses shut down some of the ports that are um on that top 10 list of the biggest ports in the world uh shenzhen guangzhou etc saw the trade uh in containers and in other goods dropping so dramatically that some of these ports were practically shut they weren't they weren't really moving any containers now the effect of that was that uh, ports in particular uh, that dire directly trade with those Chinese ports, so some major ports in Europe, but also the Pacific Coast ports in uh, the US, began to see a dramatic drop in container traffic. Uh, so, for example, Long Beach, which is one of the most significant ports, uh, and along with LA, the largest port uh, in the US, uh, saw something like between 30 to 50% drop in the amount of goods coming in. Uh, a friend uh, who lives in Seattle sends me a daily picture of container ships coming in to Seattle uh, and they being essentially empty. They're having no containers on top of them. And so there is this very interesting transformation happening in trade. We know that the trade in goods has dropped by some up to t about 10% in March. April, of course, has been the more dramatic month for COVID. So we still don't know what the numbers are for that. But we know that things have changed. A number of terminals have shut. There's um, all this glut of oil. And we don't know if the oil prices are going to stabilize at a level that is not going to generate this kind of glut. There's a lot of different changes happening. And of course, cruise ship, the cruise ship industry might see a change as well um, once it comes online again, which many promised to do in August. So um, shipping has definitely been affected by COVID. And of course, that's unsurprising because COVID is a kind of disease of globalization, if you will, because it's an, it's an illness that travels from, from place to place, like most pandemics, in fact, like the Spanish flu, which shouldn't be called Spanish flu, because apparently it started in the US and traveled by demobilizing warships and various other kinds of uh, commercial uh, merchant marine to different ports in the world. And so um, the, the more the global connections are intensified, the more also illnesses travel from location to location. And, and we're seeing the effects of that today as well. Yeah, it's probably better named uh, the Kansas flu as it was first spotted in Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, keeping That's in mind right. what you were just saying about COVID, I just want to kind of explore this a little bit more. You write, maritime transportation is not simply an enabling adjunct of trade, but is central to the very 
fabric of global capitalism. Maritime trade, logistics, and hydrocarbon transport are the clearest distillation of how global capitalism operates today. Again, considering COVID, how so? Why do you see in sea transport the clearest distillation of how global capitalism works today? And I got to tell you, Lale, I've been looking forward to your answer to this question ever since I wrote it yesterday. Um, it's a very good question. And uh, allow me to be a little bit of an academic here. From the moment that we actually started to think about capitalism as not being necessarily starting in some corner of Europe, but that rather from the very moment of its inception being a global phenomenon. And that's what I really do believe. Um, if you think about capitalism emerging uh, uh, because of uh, colonialism or consolidating because of colonialism and, and because of slavery, which is, which is, a, which is a thesis that many a huge number of people fully accept, then it becomes also clear that capitalism would not have become what it is today without the ability to send off your maritime forces, whether commercial or military, whether naval. So the British got to be uh, such a massive global power uh, precisely because they had this maritime ability. The Dutch got to be such a massive global power precisely because of their ability to project both of their, both their commercial interests and their naval interests across the oceans. The Portuguese, the same. And in fact, when the uh, United States um, uh, began to, I mean, it had always been a colonial power continentally, but when it began really in a very concerted uh, way, projecting its imperial force um, across the seas in the Caribbean, and in the Pacific, it did so through the use of maritime power, but also through the use of commercial um, uh, to, through the use of commercial shipping. And I'll give you just um, one of my favorite quotes is actually from my hands down favorite uh, U.S. Uh, author uh, Melville. And Melville and Moby Dick writes that where whale ships went, so did American man o' wars. And so, in a way. The emergence of capitalism cannot be separated from this kind of a maritime life. And this maritime life today cannot be separated from the ways in which capital operates. So we couldn't see the shift, for example, to shifts of manufacturing to East Asia and Southeast Asia if it weren't possible for uh, those goods to travel from the Pacific very easily to the largest markets in the world, in Europe, for example, or uh, in uh, the Americas. Um, we would wouldn't be able to see the ways in which, uh, for example, the U.S. consolidates its uh, power over the Western Hemisphere if it did not have the ability, for example, to put in place the Panama Canal um, and then, of course, uh, institute a series of rules and regulations that supported its own coastal trade while allowing it to project its maritime power, merchant marine power overseas through these kinds of transnational bodies. Um, in some ways, every age, the, the maritime powers of every age, whether commercial or naval, are a reflection of the kind of capitalism and the kind of imperial uh, powers we have in that age. And, and so for me to read about this, to, it, it, it became just incredibly intense clear when one reads about it, not necessarily in history books, but actually through novels, which to me are, are, are a, it's a terrible thing to confess as an academic, um, but, but novels, literature actually gives you a sense of the texture of an age. And for me, reading maritime novels of the 
18th, 19th, 20th century really indicate something about the development of capitalism in those ages and and of its uh, possibilities and growth in our age. So what does it say to you about these ports and how when the British Empire interacted with them, a monarchy, they acted with them in the same colonial way that the U.S. did with their corporations, and it seems that China is now doing with its factory of the world. What does it tell you about ports when no matter whether it's socialist, supposedly democratic, or a monarchy, doesn't matter which kind of empire comes into place, these ports become sites of exploitation where only those empires and not the locals benefit? Um, I mean, it says something, of course, about the power of capitalism to reproduce itself, right? Um, and, and its um, utter ability to control the world trade, its hegemony, which seems to be largely unbroken except for a very brief period after the Second World War and brief period in the in the global sort of uh, scale of things or in the historical scale of things. And so for me, that, that ability of capitalism to reproduce itself in the ports, no matter what form of uh, rule you have, whether it's a state capitalist like you have in China or whether you have monarchical, what is, as, it, as it is um, a, a kind of a parliamentary monarchy as it is in Britain or an absolute monarchy as it is in many of the emirates of the Arabian Peninsula, um, you, what you end up seeing is that capitalism adapts to its own context to produce, reproduce itself and to bolster the the, the em- empire in some ways. I think it's also important to also to acknowledge that there have been shifts, there have been very interesting shifts in the latter part of the 20th century, where we saw where we now see capital also emanating not from London, not from uh, the, or not solely from London or New York, but also from uh, Singapore and Dubai, and of course, now extensively, Hong Kong and other ports in China. And so that shift, the 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 shift in uh, it, and it's not a fully complete, you know, uh, shift from let's say the uh, west to the east, because of course what we also see is that the U.S. still has the largest number of billionaires in the world, and it still has the largest economy in the world, um, uh, certainly per capita, but also in absolute terms, um, and it still benefits from most of the rules of free trade, uh, etc. That the Washington consensus continues to reinforce through, um, I don't know, the various institutions which uh, Trump seems to want to dismantle. Um, but despite Trump's, I think, momentary blip, one hopes, one, what one can see is that the U.S. ability to set the terms of global trade has been hegemonic over the course of the last 60, 70 years since the end of the Second World War. And now that might be slowly giving way to China, but it's a very slow decline, if anything. And and I think that uh, paradoxically, uh, Trump's uh, decision to dismantle all these transnational liberal institutions, which for the last 70, 80 years have bolstered U.S. power in the world, uh, might be actually one of the accelerants in the decline of the U.S. as a global hegemonic uh, imperial force. And you point out that despite how President Trump is kowtowing to all of the leaders within the Arabian Peninsula, many are still turning toward China. Why turn toward China at this time if you have a president in office who is so amenable to trade deals that would be very, very friendly for those in the Arab Peninsula? 
I mean, the simple basic uh, calculus that goes into that is that China probably consumes more fossil fuel than any other place in the world right now. And in part, it is because it's a factory of the world. A huge amount of the manufacturing that uh, is, uh, you know, the whole world uses has shifted from the Americas and from Europe to uh, China and to East and Southeast Asia. And so I think in part, uh, many of the emirates, uh, many of the emirs, many of the rulers of the Arabian Peninsula see in China a very good market for their petroleum. So that's one thing. But the other thing, and I think that this is also quite important, is that there is a long history. And I think uh, we forget if we only focus on the last 50 or 60 years, there's a huge um, long history of connection and trade um, and exchange between in the Indian Ocean and all the way to the Pacific. Uh, the, the there are, uh, and I very briefly mentioned this in the early part of the book, there are actually uh, documents that show that in as early as 10th century, some of the small places on uh, the Arabian slash Persian Gulf actually traded with China and India. So that's, you know, it's a history of uh, some uh, 1,000, 1,100 years of trade. And so that connection is not one that can solely be explained through um for example, talking about geopolitical changes that happen quickly because Mohammed bin Salman comes to power or Trump comes to power. Um, if you go to Hong Kong, it is fascinating to see that there are places named after the Sassoon family, which were an Iraqi Jewish family that traded across the Indian Ocean. So these connections are absolutely uh, there. And, um, and in some ways, what we see, the modern mechanized container ports and petroleum uh, and petrochemical ports have overlaid those existing connections, uh, adapted them in some ways, and sometimes live uh, alongside them. And I think this is also something that is really fascinating, because if you shift this sort of the center of attention from the Atlantic, which is where a lot of uh, often when we're talking about the em empire or capitalism, and we shift the center of attention from the Atlantic to other bits of the world, these older connections, these older routes of trade, these older um, existing uh, sets of social, political and economic relations come to light. And I think that that's you know, to me, it's really fascinating. But then I study the Middle East. So, of course, it would be fascinating to me. So is uh I want to make sure that uh, I'm wording this right because I don't want people to think that I'm saying it's the largest e economy. Is China right now, in that it is the factory of the world, is it the world's most important economy? And are harbors, more than capitals, the real site of power around the world? Is the world controlled more through harbors and ports than governments? That's a really good question. I think I wouldn't make that categorical uh, statement just yet. And in part, I don't, because I think that while the harbors are important and that movement of cargo uh, is uh, absolutely uh, central, pivotal, I also think that there are other elements that goes into maritime trade, uh, which are still distributed um, actually largely on the coast of the Atlantic. So some of these elements are, for example, the movement of capital. Capital, the financing for both ships and port construction, uh, financing for trade. A lot of that, a lot of that maritime financing still comes from, uh, I would say, the Northwest Atlantic um, or the Northern Atlantic coast. So uh, not just London, uh, not just New York, but also places like uh, Denmark and Germany. So. 
Um, so capital still matters a great deal and capital still emanates from Europe, from Northwest Europe and from the Americas, North America. But in addition to that, I think it's also really important to recognize that there is also invisible infrastructures that hold up maritime trade as they do many other things. And these invisible structures, infrastructures are things like laws, regulations, standards of engineering, standards of accounting. Um, and uh, these are still very much set by, uh, by those European and American powers of old. So when the Trans-Pacific trade uh, deal, which uh, Trump scuppered, was going to happen, one of the things that was fascinating for me to watch was loads of uh, lawyer, uh, lawyers and accountants from the US were flying out to the Pacific to ensure that those sets of standards were actually being uniformly implemented in anticipation of that free trade deal. So to me, that still says if there are lawyers and accountants and various other kinds of management consultants trying to standardize things to standards that are still set in the US and North uh, Western Europe, then I think the power has not entirely shifted uh, to the harbors of China, not just yet. And you mentioned how there are so many aspects, so many traits of colonialism within the legal regimes that persist in maritime law. And it would seem that right now, China is now currently benefiting from colonialism's impact on maritime law. And you point to Dubai and the organization Dubai Ports World buying a British Empire, kind of a legacy company called PNO. And you talk about how the New York Times lamented that kind of loss of these interests and powers of empire. Have former colonies of the British Empire of the United States taken up the business model that served the British Empire and the United States in expanding it, an expansion that would never have happened without those state businesses? Did empires not bring the politics of democracy to the Middle East, but the processes of empire and the Middle East adopted them? I think that's probably a pretty accurate description of what has happened. So the uh, the Dubai Ports World PNO thing is fascinating because, of course, I'm sure your listeners remember the two, well, the older listeners remember the 2006 uh, when the Dubai Ports World purchased these PNO ports, and six of those PNO ports were in the U.S. Um, and and uh, a kind of a deal was made between the unions and Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer were at the forefront of this, who and they essentially, uh, instead of saying, well, Dubai Ports World is a really shitty employer, everywhere it goes, it barely recognizes unions. Uh, it is not exactly uh, the best of stewards for a given port that it purchases. Instead of putting forward these arguments, um, they put forward, uh, you know, they, they use the kind of a climate of the anti-terror climate of the time to portray all Arabs as a security danger, which, you know, uh, I don't know, as, as somebody who works on the Middle East, I find that that particular argument uh, extremely problematic. But of course, it was deeply effective because it played on the fears of, uh, you know, the U.S. in the post 2001, post September 11 world uh, uh, about Arabs. Now, what was interesting 
was Dubai Ports World is an extremely hard-headed port management company. Everywhere they go, if they don't get their way, or if they do something and their host country wants to throw them out, they have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever to take whatever host country uh, to some form of a commercial tribunal. These commercial tribunals are usually in Europe or you know the US. Um, and they absolutely has, do not hesitate. And of course, these commercial tribunals um, often, uh, very often actually, encourage uh, uh, the transnational companies or rule on behalf of the transnational companies as opposed to the sovereign states. Um, and this means that these disputes, these commercial arbitration tribunals end up becoming a mechanism for those transnational uh, corporations to consolidate their power. And they do so all the time. What is fascinating is that this Dubai Ports World, which as I said, is an extremely hard headed company and has absolutely no hesitation to take anybody and their grandmother to these arbitration tribunals, didn't say a peep about the US uh, preventing its purchase of those ports. Those ports were actually then, the, the ports that Dubai Ports World had bought from PNO were sold to AIG, the insurance company that then shortly thereafter went under. Um, and, and that was the end of that. And so it, that was fascinating because on the one hand, Dubai Ports World had followed, as you said, the imperial model of conducting business. It had expanded into these other ports. It had acted like a transnational company. But when it came to that moment of commercial arbitration, it actually bowed down to the US and said, oops, sorry, we'll, we'll, you know, turn around and go, which is not something they have done in Yemen. It's definitely not something they have done in Djibouti. It's something, you know, they're constantly entangled with in, uh, various kinds of disputes with other sovereign states in Latin America and, um, and, and even in Europe. But when it came to the US, the power of the U.S. was still there. It is still there. And I think that that also says something in, in those arbitration tribunals. And that also says something about how, although power might be shifting to China, there are still limits. And, uh, and that process is really quite slow and nonlinear in many ways. Again, the name of your book is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Sinew is the tissue that connects muscle to bone or bone to bone. It's what keeps the body connected. Do ports generate as much capitalism as they generate conflict? Because you write, this is a book about the sinews of capitalism and conflict. Are ports what binds conflicts with capitalism, especially in the yes. Ar Arabian Peninsula? Yes, they do. And, 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 and it's a mutual relationship that has been there, as I said, not just in the Arabian Peninsula, but elsewhere in the world. Um, part of the reason that, for example, the East India Company was so successful in going to India was because their commercial ships could also carry cannons. And so that entanglement between the commercial and the naval, between the military and the commercial has long been there. And the ports have also benefited from that. So if you're a strategic port, that means that you're not only a good commercial outpost, but you are also strategically located in a way that, for example, warships can take benefit of your um, uh, location. Aden, again, is a very good case where Aden, uh, when it was colonized by the British uh, in the 1830s, um, it was considered to be one of the best in terms of its location because it was right there, halfway between Europe and, uh, the, and, and India, the, the British uh, Empire's India holdings. And once the Suez Canal opened some uh, 30 years later, it was even more important. In fact, at some point, 
point. Aden was the fourth most important fueling uh, port, port in the world after New York, Liverpool and London. Uh, and so it was enormously important. But of course, Aden's history is also entirely a history of the different kinds of wars and conflicts in the region. And once uh, Aden itself was decolonized, once the um, national movement there, uh, leftist national movement there, uh, managed to chuck out the British, the British, and it was quite uh, absolutely no problem at all, shifted all their business to Dubai and to Kuwait and so what and to Bahrain. So what you see is that there is this kind of a constant shifting of both naval and commercial power between these ports and uh, one can benefit from the downfall of the other um, and 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 that kind of interwovenness of war and trade um, has been there uh, since uh, very early times but capitalism has in many ways accelerated that Lolly, I've really enjoyed our conversation I've got one more question for you but I just want to point out to our listening audience that like happens so many times on our show, even if we're talking to a guest for 40 or 45 minutes, we barely scratch the surface of the book. We got into a very good discussion today with Lale, but I just want to make sure that people understand there is exceptional writing in your book about what it's like to work on ships, what the life of the ship worker is like, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's written really beautifully, so people should check out your Thank book. Thank you. Lale Khalili is author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Our final question that we do for each and every one of our guests, unfortunately, Lale, is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, highly automated oil terminal will employ few people and will affect the local economy little. The oil terminal faces the Indian Ocean. This is a certain uh, new port that's going to be built in um, Yemen, and its exports will be intended for destinations across the seas. The effects of such an economic expansion will be the further incorporation of this distant culturally autonomous province into Yemen proper. Local grandees who agree to such a deal will be bought off and enriched at the cost of the local population. The buyers of the oil countries of East and Southeast Asia will benefit from the extracted goods and may even one day intervene through naval escorts or bases to protect their interests as the British Empire and the American Empire have in the past. Can you take the colonialism out of ports, harbors, and shipping? Uh, I would hope that you can. Uh, I mean, I'm an eternal optimist and the daughter of lefties and lived through a revolution. I have actually lived through a real revolution in which things changed. And so, yes, I do believe in the, the, the possibility of revolutionary transformation. And I hope that that will be uh, the case one day, not just for the ports of Arabian Peninsula, but for all of the places we live. See, that wasn't so hellish, was it? No, it wasn't at all. It was a very good question. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. And I'm going to continue to follow your work. If you put this book out later on with more information or any of your other writing, I really want to keep in touch. This is a fascinating work, and I think that all of our listeners would really enjoy it. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you very much, Chuck, for having me on. I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed that, too. Thank you. Uh, you can find out more about Sinews of War and Trade at sinewswartrade.com. You can follow Lale on Twitter at Lale Khalili and find all of her writing at thegamming.org. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what vice presidential pick is getting you one 
100% on board this Joe Biden for president train wreck. What VP pick is getting you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you got to do it by the end of show tomorrow on Thursday because we'll be announcing this week's winner right after Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. Alex, let's hear some more of our listeners' answers to the question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what VP pick is getting you 100% on this Biden train wreck? Kenneth W. says Lennon is still hanging out. Dan O. says coronavirus. (laughs) Dan O. quickly in the lead. Uh, Jeff G says, Corn Pop, because he's one tough dude. Uh, Shane M says, hopefully somebody named Karen. Uh, Pammy H says, Vermin Supreme. Please don't encourage that guy. Dave Z says, Vicky Pollard. And then uh, posted a link to a YouTube clip of somebody named Vicky Pollard, which is a character on a BBC show, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Sheldon B says, Hillary Rodham Clinton for doubling down on disaster. Oof. Aaron D says, Amorosa, she knows where the bodies are buried. Did you see that recent poll that said more Democrats would vote for Hillary Clinton than Joe Biden? That is uh, that is not good. <laughs> no. uh, Jack B says, Bert of Bert and Ernie fame. Scott S says, Biden slash Rona 2020 train, baby. What VP pick would get you 100% on board this Biden train wreck? Frank M says, Elvira, mistress of the dark. <laughs> Andre J says, murder hornets. Uh, Barrett H says Donald Trump Jr. or Baron, whichever. Louis M says, or Louis D says, me. The French will hate me for wearing this beret, which will bring immediate support of millions of American voters to our ticket. I'm a This Is Hell listener, which shows wit, good taste, and a modicum of intellect. Mm, really? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Benjamin C <laughs> says, Mayor Joe Quimby. Brian S says, Barack Obama. Yes, I am the dad from Get Out, and I did get this blue make america already great again trucker hat by contributing a large sum of money to an ineffectual nonprofit. But i would still blow, vote blue no matter who <laughs> that guy m- was a great actor by the way the guy who plays the father in get out he's in tons of other uh, movies that you've seen him in like i'm sure you've seen billy madison <laughs> <laughs> what vp pick is getting 100 percent on this biden train wreck bradley r says anita hill dan k <laughs> dan k says donald jr greg d says jeb Michael LP says, anyone in anywhere responsible for making the 1981 Gary Coleman film on the right track? <laughs> and finally, Nick E says, Chuck Grassley or Joni Ernst or Creflo Dollar or Dana Rohrbach or Orrin Hatch or Oliver North or Rodrigo Duterte or Franklin Graham. Many are qualified. No dearth of superior VP candidates. <laughs> oh, and finally, you could end on this. Uh, KCC says, Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> It's Dolezal. Everyone's been saying it wrong, too. Alex, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our uh, guest er, tomorrow, as well as after Jeff Dorchin delivers a moment of truth. Speaking of our guest tomorrow, Alex, who is our guest on tomorrow's show? Yeah, I was uh, sweating bullets, but I just got an email back. Uh, Michael Roper will be on to talk about his piece in The Eater about uh, the Hopleaf Bar in Chicago and sort of the fate of restaurants and bars in COVID-19. And uh, it's a... pretty depressing read yeah uh people who have been listening for a while might know michael uh he's our beer correspondent uh his bar is over at uh 
Foster and Clark in Chicago's Andersonville neighborhood, actually in the new Chinatown neighborhood because it's south of Foster. And I still, I believe that he is still selling growlers. He had a line around the block where people were social distancing and getting really good deals on growlers over there. So if you're interested, you can go to hopleaf.com to find out more. So yeah, Michael's been telling us about beer on the show here for maybe 15 years. And uh, now that his business is not able to be open, uh, we'll find out exactly what that means for him, especially it's unique for Michael because he it was just a bar and then it turned he bought the place next door and it turned into a restaurant and a bar so it's a very unique way in which he is having to deal with and having to confront all the challenges of COVID-19 tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live at 10am Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream and we will again be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Lale Khalili. That was a really fascinating conversation, and that was a very difficult book to read. When somebody is telling you in the introduction that this is going to be like kind of a meandering story covering on a whole bunch of different topics, you start getting worried if you can actually create a set of questions for an interview. But I actually did. I'm very surprised about that. The planet's on fire. So, yes. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>